Well, it's Easter Sunday, and I've already expressed that I'm excited that we're gathered here together to celebrate. If you call Radiant Home, um, you know that we've been building for this moment. We've had a campaign of 21 days of prayer leading up to this moment, and that moment is finally here. Uh, Last week, we were gathered for Palm Sunday, and I said, hey, reflect and prepare your heart this week for Easter, and that moment is here. Uh, On Friday, we were together. Uh, we read the crucifixion account from John 18 and 19 in its entirety. And I want to show you this picture of, of, of Good Friday. This is the, uh, the set that, that we had on Friday. It was beautiful. If you didn't come, I wanted you to see it because on Good Friday, Jesus is on the cross. But on Sunday morning, the cross is empty. The tomb is empty. He is risen. We are, we are absolutely blessed by a team of people who work hard to make this happen from the musicians to the people who are in the foyer who are greeting you, to those who are in the kitchen cooking breakfast after sunrise service. Uh, and and uh, I want to say a special thank you to uh, Chris Hanneman and Kelly Spork. They are the ones who spearheaded uh, all this design that we see for Easter, the empty tomb, the cross. Uh, it's, it's incredible atmosphere they've set for us as we uh, worship in this season. So if you see them in the hallway, thank them. Give them a high five or uh, air high five, whatever you do during this season. Yesterday, we had our Saturday morning prayer for the month of April. We do it every first Saturday. And can I just say that you were prayed for. If this is your first time at Radiant, or if you're a guest, we don't know your name, whatever, you were prayed for, as well as the people we do know. Um, We're praying for this moment, because everything's been leading to this moment. And then this morning, we had a great sunrise service. Um, Heather actually spoke and um, did a wonderful job, and I'll reference it probably in my message, because she said something that was really great that I'm stealing. I also wore a tie this morning at seven in the morning. And if you think a preacher should wear a tie and you're disappointed that I'm not wearing a tie, you should have been here at seven in the morning because I wore one. I recognize that most of the people who are gathered here today are probably believers in Jesus Christ. You would call yourself a Christian. And whether you attend regularly or not, whether you go to church week, week after week after week or just every once in a while, we're so glad you were here this morning. And we're so glad that you've chosen to celebrate Christ's resurrection with us this morning. And if you are a Christian, you've probably been to dozens upon dozens of Easter services. You heard me in my prayer. I've been to 42 Easter celebrations. Now, you probably know firsthand that not every Easter is created equally. Some are more meaningful than others. Some are more memorable than others. Some are life-changing. And I'm not going to make any guarantees that today's life-changing. That's really God's business. But I will commit that our team, the people who have been working hard for this moment, for this, this, this time together that we've been building to, our aim is for this to be a meaningful celebration. I'm not going to oversell it and say life changing, just meaningful. It's worth my time to roll out of bed to, to try a new church, to show up at this place where there's strangers. It's worth my time to try to tie that tie. Let it be meaningful to tuck my shirt in. Whatever, whatever you endured to get here, we want to make sure this is a meaningful celebration. And I, I'm convinced that... Um, after 42 years of Easter, that the, the difference that makes a celebration like this meaningful really has to do with, with one's focus. And not just focus, but focus on the right things. You know, I, when, I was, when I was a kid, the focus was on the Easter eggs. Let's just be honest. And I know Jesus died and rose again. That means I got eggs. Didn't know what the connection was, but who cares? There's candy in the eggs. And then I became a teenager, and the focus was the cute girl across the aisle And her focus was on who's wearing, you know, I can't get to wear my white shoes and who's what else is, you know. You know, I dated a girl in high school who said she goes to Easter because she wants to see what other people are wearing. 
I didn't marry that girl. <laughs> Probably not pastor wife material there. I don't know. Um, not that the teenage version of me was pastor material. Anyways. As an adult with small kids, the focus was just trying to make it to church on time. Can I get an amen? Oh, yeah. But once you finally get to church, the focus is on the resurrection. It is on Christ. But even then, it can vary in meaningfulness. See, I think the the greatest thing that makes the difference for whether or not uh, an Easter celebration, a, a worship service where we focus on Christ's resurrection, the thing that makes it really significant is whether or not we really, in that moment, and I know we don't always live in the same place and year to year things shift and change, but whether or not we really grasp the resurrection and its significance. Do we allow ourselves to be moved? Not emotional. I mean, some of you are emotional. That's great. But even if you're a stoic, stone-cold face, is your heart moved by what we look at today? That's the real difference on, on whether it's meaningful is do we really grasp the significance of the resurrection and does it, does it make us respond somehow, some way? So my aim in this message is, is to do that. We're going to talk about the resurrection. We're going to talk about its significance and why Easter is a big deal beyond white shoes and, and Easter egg hunts. Now, if you're not a Christian, we are we're thrilled you're here. Maybe, you're not a, maybe you would say, well, I'm not a Christian, but I'm somewhere between Christian and not Christian. Whatever you are on your journey, we're so glad you're here. I had you in mind, actually, when I wrote this message. I'm going to speak to the Christians, of course, because I think we're here to celebrate this thing. And I think as we look at the resurrection, it'll help our heart and our spirit to be lifted and to celebrate. But if you are not a believer, man, we want this to be meaningful for you, too. As meaningful as it can be. So if you have your Bibles, will you turn with me to Luke chapter 23? We're going to pick up right where we left off. From Friday. On Friday, we read the, the crucifixion account from the Gospel of John, but we, we ended when Christ, passed, when Christ died. So we're going we're gonna to go back to that moment before we get to the resurrection. John chapter 23, starting in verse 50. Now, let me give you a little background as you turn there. Uh, Luke, one of the gospel writers, all the gospel writers had their own kind of like emphasis, the thing that they kind of uh, were really trying to get across as they gave the account of Christ's life. Luke, of all the authors, of all the gospel writers, emphasizes Christ's humanity over more than the others does. He, he gives us the, the most extensive birth narrative. He gives us the most vivid death and crucifixion account of Jesus and what we see in chapters 22 and 23 is the things that we know are familiar that those kids talked about in that video, the Last Supper. Jesus predicts that Peter will, will deny him. He goes to pray in the Mount of Olives. He's arrested. Peter does actually deny him. And then he goes before the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish high court, who does not have the power to uh, sentence Jesus to, to death. They, they can't put anyone to death. They don't have that ability. But they, but they do know that, that the Roman government does. Uh, so they sent him on to Pilate, who's the Roman governor. Then we read in 23, his trial before Pilate, the crucifixion, and his death. And we pick up right when Jesus is dead on the cross, starting in verse 50 of Luke chapter 20, 23. Now there was a good and righteous man named Joseph. He was a member of the Jewish high council, which is the Sanhedrin. But he had not agreed with the decision and the actions of the other religious leaders. He was from a town of Arimathea in Judea, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God to come. He went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Then he took the body down from the cross and wrapped it in a long sheet of linen cloth and laid it in a new tomb that had been carved out of a rock. 
This was done late on Friday afternoon, the day of preparation, as Sabbath was about to begin. As the body was taken away, the women from Galilee who followed Jesus to see the tomb where his body was placed. Then they went home to prepare spices and ointments to anoint his body. But by this time they were finished. By this time, by the time they were finished, the Sabbath had begun, so they rested as required by the law. So it's Friday evening, yet yeah, 23, verse 50. The women. <laughs> Like, number one rule in public speaking, you're not supposed to ignore the distraction. You're supposed to, like, bring it and then bring it back to you. Except for the baby who cried last week. Like, I wasn't going to call that little baby out. Anyway, it happens. I cause half the distractions here anyway, so I'm not judging anybody. For the disciples, what they've just witnessed is the worst possible thing that could happen. You would have disciples who um, are afraid. They're confused. They're disillusioned. They're unsure of what's next. Because things are very uncertain. You see, Jesus' closest followers, they knew that Jesus was a, was a profound teacher. They knew that he was a miracle worker. They had hoped he was the Messiah. Peter even confesses, you are the Christ, in Mark chapter 8. But it appears they were wrong because, after all, the Messiah is not supposed to die. But they watched Jesus die. They followed Joseph of Arimathea, and then we know from John, Nicodemus uh, also assisted they took the body and they buried Jesus. And then verse 56 gives you the mindset of the disciples at that time. Look at verse 56 again. The very fact that they went home to prepare spices to anoint his body means that in their mind, Jesus is dead and he's going to stay dead. They're not thinking resurrection. I mean, everything happened so fast. They weren't, ready, they weren't able to like prepare for this, this burial. They weren't able to um, put the spices on the body. They didn't, the Jewish... Uh, um, they didn't embalm like we know embalming, but they, they tried to cover the smell of decomposing body with fragrant spices. But everything happened so fast. On Thursday night, he's arrested. On Friday night, he's dead and buried. And they're like, whoa. So they go play catch up and, and try to anoint body. But really what they're trying to do is let's give him the proper burial. Let's say our goodbye. Let's close the book on this chapter of our life. Let's close the book on this movement that he started. And then we'll figure out what's next. You don't anoint a dead body if you think that dead body is coming back. The women were not thinking resurrection. They were thinking what you and I think when we think of someone who's dead, they're going to just stay dead. <laughs> there was nobody outside the tomb like when the stone rolled away, counting down, five, four. You know, like the ball in Times Square that comes down, five, four, three, two. The ball comes down, the stone rolls away. That wasn't happening. No one was expecting it, even though Jesus had said it, and they're reminded that Jesus says, says it. Now, for the disciples, this is the worst possible thing that could happen. They, they dropped everything and followed him with hope. Now, for the readers of Luke's gospel, this is also the worst thing that could possibly happen. We know from kind of an outside perspective who Jesus is. We've seen him We've seen his ministry. We've seen what he's done. And this is the worst possible thing that could happen. Now, I know some of you are saying, well, it's not over yet. Yes, don't get ahead of me. I know it's not over yet. That's the whole point of the sermon. But right now, in this moment, it's the worst possible thing that could happen. What could be worse as readers of Luke's gospel than see God in the flesh be crucified? 
What worse injustice could there be? What more painful loss could there be? What greater suffering could there be of an innocent man? One, one pastor and author that I appreciate wrote this, the only man who ever lived a life that was perfect in every way possible, who gave his life for the sake of many, and whom willingly suffered from birth to death in loyalty to his calling was cruelly and publicly murdered in the most vicious way. This is the worst thing that could happen to Jesus. This is the worst thing that happened to us. This is where we put our hope. And then Sunday comes. Pick it up with me, John chapter 24, starting in verse 1. Oh, Luke, I like John. It comes off, it rolls off the tongue really easy. <laughs> if I ever became the Pope, I would be Pope Jerome John or something like that. Anyway, uh, very early on Sunday morning, the woman went to the tomb, taking spices that they had prepared, which we read about a second ago. They, they went home to prepare them. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. So they went in, but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. As they, as they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them clothed in dazzling robes. It was their Easter, as you are here with your dazzling clothes. All right, nah, that's a bad joke. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. Then the men asked, why are you looking among the dead for someone who was alive? He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Remember that he what he told you back in Galilee. The Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and then he would rise again on the third day. Then he remembered. Then they remembered what he, that he had said this, so they rushed back to, from the tomb to tell the 11 disciples and everyone else what, what had happened. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and several other women who told the apostles what had happened. But the story sounded like nonsense to the men, so they didn't believe it. However, Peter jumped up, ran to the tomb to look, stooped in and peered, and he saw the empty linen wrappings. Then he went home again, wondering what had happened. I know that was a whole lot of text. We'll walk through what we just read. A number of things happened there. They show up. The stone was rolled away. They're saying they're puzzled because why? They're not expecting resurrection. They're expecting a dead body to be there. Then we read in verses 4 through 7, two men show up in dazzling clothes. The, the other Gospels call these men angels, and later in this very chapter, verse 23, they're referenced as angels. But for whatever reason, it's two men in dazzling clothes. Verse 5 and 7, the angel's response to them, Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is risen. Remember what he told you? And now that reference to remember what he told you comes is actually a reference to what he did tell them in Luke chapter 9 in the same book. Luke chapter 9, Jesus says these things, that he would be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and crucified and that he would rise again. So they rush back to the disciples. Now there's 11 of them. You remember uh, Judas took his own life. Now there's 11 of them. They go back to the 11 to say, you will not believe what just happened. And what does it say the response of the disciples is? Well, praise the Lord. No, they're like, that's crazy. That's nonsense. Why? Because the disciples weren't thinking resurrection. They were skeptical. They didn't believe. Now, can I just say this? If you are here today, maybe you're not a Christian. I, I mean, I don't think you could be a Christian and believe this, but if, if you think, I like Jesus for his good teaching, I know that he was a historical person, but this resurrection business, I'm not so sure. 
Sounds like nonsense? Well, you're in good company. Jesus' closest friends thought it was nonsense. The 11 disciples definitely are not thinking resurrection. Scared, afraid, hiding in that room, trying to figure out what's next. The worst thing that could happen has happened. Peter gets up and says, I got to see for myself. He runs to the tomb. He sees the linen wrappings. And then in verse 12, it says, he went home wondering what had happened. What, what, what is going on? Now, I want to skip a section here because uh, it'll preach as its own Easter sermon, to be honest with you. It's the, the two disciples. It goes from Peter walking home, wondering what happened. And then we read about two disciples in Luke's account that are walking from Jerusalem to a town called Emmaus. And as they walk, they're talking about all the things that they had witnessed. And then Jesus appears to them. They don't recognize it's him. They have this conversation. Um, and then eventually Jesus says something. They're like, whoa, that's Jesus. And then Jesus is gone. Those guys get to Emmaus and they're like, man, our hearts were burning with us when that guy was talking about scripture. They turn around, they walk back to Jerusalem so they could tell the 11 what they've experienced, which brings us up to where we're going to read next. Luke chapter 24, verse 33. So skip down to 33, the, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. That's a whole other Easter sermon for another day. I don't want to preach it all at one time because I got to have something for next year. Um, pick it up in verse 33 with me. And within the hour, these two disciples were on their way back to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 disciples and the others who had gathered with them, who said, the Lord has really risen. He appeared to Peter. Or, um, then the two, and that's, there's a, anyways, we won't get there. Then the two from Emmaus told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them and they were walking alongside the road and how they had recognized him as they were breaking the bread. And just as they were telling about it, Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. But the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. Now, if your Bible has red letters for Jesus' words, these are red letters. Why are you frightened, he asked. Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands, look at my feet. You can see that it's really me. Touch me and make sure that I'm not a ghost, because ghost don't have bodies, as you can see, that I do. As he spoke, he showed them his hands and his feet. Still they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. That's funny. Disbelief and joy and wonder. So it's not like, I don't believe this, but it's like, I can't believe this. Then he asked them, do you have anything to eat? He's been in the tomb for three days. Then they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he ate it. They ate it, and he watched. Could you imagine? Here, Jesus, have some fish. And they're like, <laughs> he's eating fish. You know, I think sometimes we think of Jesus as like, always walking around like this, like, lo, behold, I am Jesus. I mean, he's like sitting there eating fish. And I could see him like finishing his bite, because he's a gentleman, and then saying the next thing. When I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said, yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of sin for all who repent. You are witnesses of all these things. And now I will send the Holy Spirit just as my father proclaimed. 
but stay here in the city until you receive, uh, until the Holy Spirit comes on you and fills you with power from heaven. The disciples who encounter Jesus on the road to Emmaus come back. They tell Jesus, they tell the disciples that Jesus has risen. They're staying there telling the story, and then Jesus is in their midst. He didn't open the door. He walked through the door, which says that Jesus didn't really need the tomb to be rolled, the stone to be rolled away. He needed the stone to be rolled away, not for his sake to escape the tomb, but for his disciples to look in and see that it was empty. They think he's a ghost. They give him a piece of fish when he asked for fish. If you watch Ghostbusters, and I think that thing eats and it just falls to the floor, but Jesus eats the food. He's eating the fish. He's not a ghost. And Jesus says, why are you frightened? Look, touch me. I'm not a ghost. He shows them his hands and his feet. He, um, and then he says, the things that I said before had to be fulfilled. Luke says in verse 45 that he opens their mind to Scripture. And he says this. Words that are the turning point of the story. Words that make the worst possible thing that could happen the best possible thing that could happen. Words that would change their life and would change all of human history. It was written long ago, verse 46 through 48, that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It was written that this message would be proclaimed in authority of his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent the worst possible thing becomes the best possible thing. The very worst thing that could happen, Jesus' death, was at the very same time the best thing that could happen, forgiveness of sins. In God's righteous, wise plan, the dark and disastrous moment of the crucifixion that the disciples witnessed on Friday evening becomes the moment that all the darkness and disastrous things that sin has done to this world would be fixed. A moment of death becomes a moment that gives life. A moment of hopelessness becomes a moment that gives hope a moment of injustice, a moment of amazing grace. The moment of extreme suffering becomes the moment, the moment that guarantees that one day all suffering will end. Jesus' arrest and his death provides us our freedom and life. All of this is validated by the resurrection. Let me read you a quote regarding how the resurrection validates all of this. I mean, if, if there's no resurrection, man, this thing is over. What Jesus said about himself makes him a liar if there's no resurrection. All his good teaching, we're throwing that out the door, right? That's not very eloquent. That was Jerome. Let me read to someone who's a little more eloquent. Before the resurrection, there were no Christians. After he was crucified, there were no believers. After he was crucified, everybody gave up hope. Nobody was going to launch a movement in Jesus' name. Nobody was going to keep the parable of the Good Samaritan and the parable of the prodigal son in circulation. Nobody was going to repeat his teaching to anyone. Jesus claimed too much about himself. And if it was possible for him to be arrested and crucified, then he wasn't who he claimed that he was. The resurrection changed all of that. So if there's one thing I want you to walk out with today, it's this. The resurrection confirms that the very worst thing that could happen at the very same time, is the very best thing that could happen. The very worst thing, confirmed by the resurrection. I think God likes to work that way, don't you? Some of you who've been Christians a long time, you know this. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful truth, but sometimes it's a painful truth. There's kind of a pattern where God likes to take the, the, the broken and the, the hard and the, the, the terrible moments and breathe new life into it and redeem it and, and turn it around. The same God 
who planned for the worst thing to be the very best thing is your heavenly father. He rules over every moment of your life. He takes the disasters in your life and he makes them tools of redemption. He did it with the, most, with, with, the, with the very best thing and the very worst thing. And now all the bad things in your life, he does a very similar thing. The hardest things in your life become some of the sweetest moments. New life emerges from death. It's a principle that we see in scripture. Jesus said it in John 12. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. We just don't like the death part, do we? We keep reading and we keep going through that passage. Verse 48, we see, um, and here, I think this is really kind of the moment where I would, I would address those of us who maybe have questions or concerns or doubts. Because what we see in verse 48, at the very end of this, the greatest news, there's forgiveness of sins. He says, and you, you 11 who were hiding in this room, you 11 who were disillusioned thinking about what's next, you will be my witnesses of all of this. Changes their life and it changes human history. Then he says, go and, be, go and wait for the Spirit to give you power. And they, these, as we know, these witnesses were empowered by the Spirit. And the church was born. Can I say something that... Um, There are people sometimes who are, who, are, who are thinking, man, I don't know that I believe in this Jesus thing because I don't know that I believe the Bible. Have you ever heard of that? Can I, can I make a statement that's going to sound like I'm a heretic at first? Then you take a breath and think about it, and maybe I'm not. The Bible isn't the foundation of our, of, of, of our faith. The resurrection is. The reason we believe what we believe is because there was a testimony of eyewitnesses, these disciples. And let me be clear. I, I believe the Bible. I believe in the Bible. I believe you can trust the Bible. But the Bible is not the foundation of Christianity. It's the witness of Jesus' closest friends who were scared and skeptical and doubted. The church was born in the book of Acts, in the day of Pentecost. The Bible, as we know, the Bible was not in existence. As a matter of fact, the Bible did not exist as we know the Bible for another 300 years. It was the witness of eyewitnesses, the testimony of eyewitnesses. The church explodes in the book of Acts because of the testimony of eyewitnesses. Yeah, they had the Jewish Old Testament. Yes, there was letters that circulated that became part of the New Testament canon, um, inspired word of God. But it was the, the resurrection that started this thing. That's the significance of the resurrection. So you can't say, I don't believe in Jesus because the Bible says Jesus rose from the dead, but I don't believe in the Bible. Well, you know what? Eyewitnesses said he rose from you don't believe in the Bible. But eyewitnesses, and in today's culture, we don't believe in eyewitnesses. But in that time, eyewitnesses were a big deal. These eyewitnesses recorded what they saw. Matthew was an eyewitness, wrote the Gospel of Matthew. Mark spent time with Peter, who was an eyewitness, and, and says, yeah, I, I, I believe. Luke, the, the Gospel we're reading, he does his investigation. He talks to who he can Eyewitnesses included and says, yeah, this is what happened. 
John himself wrote the Gospel of John, an eyewitness. Peter, the, the, who, there is no Gospel of Peter in our Bible. He doesn't believe the testimony of the women. He is skeptical. He has to go see for himself. He returns wondering what happened. But in Acts, in Acts chapter 3, when he's preaching before, uh, when he's preaching in the temple, after the day of Pentecost, he's preaching in the temple, he says this in Acts chapter 3, you killed the author of life, talking to the religious authorities, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses to this fact. The skeptical, unbelieving, scared person says we are witnesses because he encountered Jesus, the resurrected Lord. Perhaps my favorite is James. James, the brother of Jesus, who's credited with writing the book of James. Listen to James 1.1. 1, 1. This letter is from James, a slave of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this question. What's it going to take for those of you who have brothers to call your brother Lord? I don't care what kind of miracles you may do or what kind of card tricks or fancy teachings you have. I'm only going to call you Lord if I see you die and rise again. I have a brother, and there's no way I'm calling him Lord. He does call me Lord, however. <laughs> when I'm holding him down? No, I'm just kidding. We believe because Disciples told us what happened, what they saw. And Jesus says, you will be witnesses of all this. Now, some of you are saying, well, wait a minute, there are some objections to the resurrection. What about the Roman soldiers? Didn't they steal the body? If the Roman soldiers stole the body, I'm sure they would love to have shown the evidence. I'm sure the religious authorities would love to have had the Roman soldiers buy the, buy the body, show it off. What about, what about the disciples? Maybe the disciples stole the body, Jerome. Okay. A bunch of young men, uneducated, unarmed, untrained, overpowered the trained armed Roman guards. They devised the greatest scheme in human history, deception, right? You, you believe this about these 11 guys? They pull it off, but they pull it off at a great tremendous, at a great cost to self. Like if they were trying to pull one over on, I don't know, all of human history, is it worth dying for? Of the 11 remaining disciples, 10 would die martyrs' deaths. Would they be willing to die for a lie? They died because they saw him. Of those 11, the only one who did not die a martyr's death was John. He escaped an attempt to be executed miraculously, according to tradition. He was exiled in the island of Patmos where he, he died in his old age. But he's the only one willing to die because they're trying to fool us by hiding Jesus' body? No. They saw. One of the disciples, Heather referenced it this morning in sunrise service, Thomas, we call him Doubting Thomas, we read his account in John chapter 20. He wasn't there when Jesus showed up in the room and he comes in and they're like, oh, yo, Jesus showed up. He's like, yeah, right. I'm not gonna believe till I actually see the wounds, touch them myself. And Jesus shows up to, to Thomas and says, yeah. Thomas, see the wounds. Jesus' response was, my Lord and my God. 
Some of you identify with Thomas. You have your doubts. But after he encountered Jesus, doubting Thomas had no more doubts. According to tradition, to, to tradition, he was the first missionary to India. He left the Roman Empire to take the gospel. A lot of people went this direction, and he went that, I mean, geographically, really, that direction. He was, he had ministry there. There's, there's a long story there. There was actually a Jewish population in India, but he, he, he converted Hindus as well. He shared the gospel and the good news of Jesus. And um, according to tradition, he was, he was executed because he was, told, he was asked to deny his faith. And he said, I would not deny his faith. They impaled him. I don't think the disciples stole the body and thought, and thought we should steal the body, deceive everybody, and then die for it. There was no doubt in Thomas's mind. And it cost him his life. These are the witnesses of a risen Christ in an empty tomb. From those few witnesses 2,000 years ago, soon they became 3,000 people in the book of Acts. And today, 2,000 years later, there's millions of people, hundreds of thousands of churches that place their faith in an empty tomb because the resurrection confirms that the very worst thing that could happen is at the very same time the very best thing that could happen. So here's what I'd like for you to do as you leave today. Walk away with a few things. First of, all, first of all, I want you to be careful how you make sense of your life. Like the disciples trying to make sense of the very worst thing that had, could, could possibly happen. What looks like disaster may in fact be grace. What looks like the end may in fact be the beginning. What looks hopeless may be God's instrument to give you real and lasting hope. God is committed to taking what seems so bad and turning it into something that's very, very good. I don't know where you are. I don't know what you're walking through. Let me just tell you, be careful how you make sense of your life. Make space. Don't interpret everything and figure everything out. Make space for God. And your second thing would be this. Consider the testimony of eyewitnesses to an empty tomb. Now, this is actually geared to the non-Christians, but if you're a Christian, I want you to stay engaged because here's what I know about the gospel. Here's what I know about the good news because I'm a Christian and I do this too. I forget sometimes the things that I know and I live my life as a grace, grace, grace amnesiac. I forget who I am in Christ. I begin trying to earn it again, even though I knew when I first came in, I, I didn't earn it. These eyewitnesses were willing to pay a high price to share the good news of Jesus. And the good news is this. Paul writes in Romans 3.22, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who they are. Notice that he doesn't say we are made right by being good enough and earning it. We're made right by placing our faith in Jesus. Everyone who believes It's true for you if you believe. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done. Sounds like a, I know it sounds like a Backstreet Boys song. It's, I don't mean to. I don't care who you are. You know what I'm talking about. It doesn't matter who you are. I can't say that again. It doesn't matter how bad you've been. It doesn't matter uh, how left, messed up your life may be. It doesn't matter how many times you've sinned or the people you've hurt. 
You're not made right with God by being good. You're made right with God because Jesus was perfect. He took the penalty. He paid the price for your sins. There's a difference between religion and religion. We had this conversation at our dinner table recently. Is Christianity a religion? Because we, I mean, technically, academically, it's a religion, belief system, world, whatever. But really, if you're a Christian, it's a, it's, it's a relationship. Jesus didn't come to start a religion. He came to start a relationship. He came to offer us eternal life. To show us the love of God in the flesh. See, religion is all about how you perform, but relationship is about how Jesus performed. Religion says, if you work hard enough, then, then maybe God will love you. Relationship said, God loved first. Religion is all about what you do, and relationship is, our, is all about what Jesus has already done. The eyewitnesses of an empty tomb carried this message. You're not made right with God by your own good works, but by God's grace. See, the eyewitnesses of the empty tomb were witnesses to the one who claimed to be the Son of God, the one who said that he's the only way to the Father, the one who predicted his own death, the one who who died and then rose again, fulfilling that prediction. I don't know about you, but if I was witness to that guy, I'm all in on that guy. When that guy said he did all this for someone like me, a sinner who's troubled and lost, the guy who shows us the Father's heart, the guy who's willing to take the place of the sinful and separated, the sick. It was those same eyewitnesses who carried the good news, calling people just to believe and to call on him. That good news is for you, and all you must do is believe and call on him to believe that his work and his promises apply to you, to believe in your heart that Jesus did what he claims to have done, what those witnesses witnessed, what 2,000 years, millions of Christians, hundreds of thousands of people believe because of the resurrection I'm convinced when your heart believes, before you stand up, sit down, kneel, pray, whatever, I believe that's the moment you cross the line of faith. Lots of churches say, stand up, repeat after me, whatever. I mean, those are, there's, there's, that's great, do it. But something happens in your heart that crosses the line of faith, and all that other stuff is just the evidence that you've crossed that line. And today I would ask if, if that's you, maybe today you're thinking, maybe this is the moment. <laughs> I would imagine sometimes people are sitting there going, oh man, I think I just crossed it. We have elders who are going to make themselves available on this last song as we close. Uh, Elders, I'm going to ask you to actually kind of stay to the sides and not along the front. Um, They're available to pray for you. They're available to pray for you for whatever need, to be honest. Uh, You don't have to be saying, I believe. You just, you could could have a sick cat. Actually, let me do a timeout here. Uh, Lois Pano, we need to pray for her. She fell and broke her leg and is having surgery this morning. Uh, If you don't, if you're new to Radiant, you don't, you may not know the Panos, but I am the second pastor of Radiant Church, but in some ways I stand in the shadow of three men. <laughs> That's not a fair deal. Uh, Tom Pano is, uh, he was a pastor at Lakeview and kind of the grandfather of this church. And then Tommy and, and then John and 
so I'm the second guy, but I stand in the shadow of like these other dudes. Awesome. I'm just kidding. It's great. I love it. But our elders will be there and they'll make themselves available as we sing the last song and afterwards as well. So if you don't want to stand up and walk in front of people, that's cool. You don't have to. Wait till the song's done. Wait till they dismiss you and go find one of these elders. But they're going to move to those spots as we sing the song so you can see who they are. And man, you don't need to pray with an elder. I'd love you to because we'd get to know you and resource you. But you could be driving home today. You could be laying in bed tomorrow and say, man, I, I think I believe. Let us know. We'd love to celebrate with you. As I close, let me address the Christians one last time. We are here because we have encountered the resurrected Christ. Each one of us personally. We've done it through the testimony of these witnesses of a risen Savior. We've done it because the work of the Holy Spirit in our life has made that testimony alive. And now may our testimony of a risen Savior be added to theirs. May our voices and our lives proclaim he is risen. He is risen indeed. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you While we were still sinners, Christ died for us and we didn't earn it. We would forgive us for those of us who are Christians who are trying to earn it now. It's like we denied the whole message of the gospel when we first became Christians. Help us, Lord, to rest in you, to find a place of comfort in the midst of our mess because you did it for us. Father, I pray that there would be a refreshing renewing sense of the grace that you've shown us and that our lives will reflect that. In Jesus' name, amen.